All right. Good morning, church. Go ahead, open up to Romans chapter 1. You just heard those words read by Sarah, and she read, For the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Church, this is why we do what we do. This is why Paul did what he did. It was for the sake of his name. It was for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. And this morning, uh, before we start into the sermon, we are gonna, we're going to pause and we're going to pray. We've got a couple of our people down in El Salvador on a medical missions trip. So Joni Collins and Zeke Moore, along with uh, another team of people from outside of our church, uh, traveled down yesterday to El Salvador. Um, and Joni has led this team down there for, for many years. Uh, Zeke, this is his first trip uh, down there. And so we do plan uh, upon their return to have them uh, share with you what all that God is doing down there and, and to get to hear um, all that. But right now we want to stop and we want to pray. Uh, we know that the team last night was uh, tired and fatigued just from a long day of trying to catch flights and, and traveling down there. Uh, an answer to prayer was that the, the medications got cleared through customs, but there was a little snag and hold up with the eyeglasses and sunglasses that they were going to be uh, distributing. And so we want to pray that, um, that, that those can get through. Um, as well as pray for, uh, we're going to pray specifically for Joni. She had a trip and fall and, and hurt her uh, leg in the process. And so uh, the, the team's a little, little tired, a little weary. Uh, they're, they're gathering with the church there in El Salvador this morning to worship. And, and let's pray that God would uh, refresh them and prepare them for all the work that he would have for them uh, this week. And then we'll pray for this uh, new series that we're starting into this morning in the, in the book of Romans. So let's pray. Bow with me. Father God, we do thank you for Joni and for Zeke and for the rest of the team. Lord, we thank you that they have arrived in El Salvador safely. Uh, but Lord, we know that, that Joni right now might be in a little bit of pain. She might have uh, an injury there, Lord. And so we ask God that you would, um, that you would restore her health. Um, Lord, that this would not uh, be anything that would hinder uh, you accomplishing through her what you, you have purposed to accomplish. And so, Lord, we ask for her, her heart and her spirit that this would not be a discouragement to her, Lord, but that this morning, both her and Zeke and the rest of the team, as they worship with your people in El Salvador, Lord, would you refresh them? Would you sustain them? Would you strengthen them for the work that you have uh, there this week? Uh, Lord, I ask that uh, they would, uh, the team would bring a refreshment to the, uh, the church in El Salvador, but I also, Lord, ask that the church in El Salvador would bring refreshment to them. Um, Lord, we ask, uh, we want to lift up those who um, who's, uh, will come into contact with, with Zeke and Joni specifically, Lord, and we ask that you would prepare their hearts to, to hear the good news about Jesus and that they would have hearts prepared to receive this good news. Lord, we ask that you'd give uh, Joni and Zeke uh, the right words to share, uh, the right actions and, and, and good works to perform, and Lord, we ask that you would move and work powerfully through them. Uh, Lord, we do ask that whatever details need to take place to get the glasses through uh, customs, Lord, that that would uh, happen and uh, that they might be able to distribute uh, those glasses to those in need. Father, this morning as we start to look into Romans, uh, Lord, I know many of us have, have studied this before. We've heard teachings on this before. And so, God, I ask that you would... Uh, you would help us come to this in a, in a fresh and a new way. Uh, Lord, we know there might not necessarily be new doctrine to some of us to learn, but maybe for others there is, Lord. And I ask that you would uh, give us minds that are ready to learn what you would have for us. Uh, we ask, Lord, that you would give us tender hearts that are quick to praise you and adore you for your majesty and your glory that we see in this letter. And Lord, then I ask that you'd also give us surrendered wills ready to obey you and what you call us to in your word. So Lord, help the preaching of this 
of this letter be faithful. Whoever is preaching the, the word on a given Sunday, Lord, may, may it be faithful to your intent and the purpose behind this. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move and work in power, that you would bring the, the heat and the light that is needed to this word this morning as we open it up as, as Franklin City Church. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do a great work in and through us. Help us delight in your word this morning. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, as we start to look into to Romans, um, I wanted to share with you a little bit about team sports. All right. And I've, I've always enjoyed participating in team sports uh, growing up. I think there's a lot of things that you can learn uh, as you grow up playing on a team. Now, certainly in our day, we've seen youth sports being taken to an unhealthy degree in some situations, and so uh, I acknowledge that. Uh, but all that being said, I think there are still plenty of good things that can come from playing on a team. Uh, one of the things that you learn is that you learn how to be a good teammate. Uh, and one of the ways that you become a good teammate is that you learn how to rejoice with those who rejoice. Right? You learn how to celebrate when your teammate scores a basket. Uh, you learn how to celebrate when your, your teammate does something good that helps the team. Even if it, it's, just, it's not all about you, right? You learn how to celebrate with others as they have an opportunity to find success and bring uh, the team victory. You learn how to be a good teammate. And in being a good teammate, you also learn how to weep with those who weep. Right? You learn how to put your arm around a teammate who's maybe just gotten injured and, and has to sit out. Uh, you learn how to come alongside a teammate who's just missed a game-winning shot and just feels like the world has come crashing down on him. Right? Or you get, to, you get to run over and help a teammate when they fall to the ground. That's, what, that's one of my favorite things about watching sports is I love to see the guys who run over to pick up their teammate off the ground. But one of the other great things about playing on a team is that you have the opportunity to experience the joy and the freedom that comes from playing for something bigger than yourself. There's joy and freedom in that. Good coaches, right, they'll say, you know, you play for the name on the front of your jersey, not the one on your back, right? You're playing ultimately for your team or for your school, not just yourself. And so it becomes very glaringly obvious to spot a bad teammate, right? Someone who's playing for the sake of their own name and not the team. Uh, what you'll find is you'll find that someone maybe has had a bad game, but their team is still winning and they're just pouting around and just kind of kicking the ground and feeling sorry for themselves that they've had a bad game and and. Uh, you know, you just want to shake them and say, hey, no, look, your, your team is winning. Your team, we're, we're winning. And it's so, it's so sad. And I'll be honest, I even get a little upset when someone who, 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 who is maybe having a bad game, but their team is winning and they're just down in the dumps. And so I really, I really did have to control my emotions in coaching six to eight-year-olds uh, this past winter in basketball, right? Uh, like, come on. Don't be discouraged. Don't be defeated. Your team is, is winning. Like they might, they might tolerate that sort of thing on the orange and red team, but we're playing for the glory of the blue team, all right? And we're, we're going to be good teammates. We're going to celebrate the success of the team. But man, how sad and discouraging and just it is to see someone be defeated all the while their team is, is winning. And you see, it's even sadder when we live this way as Christians. Because as Christians, because of God's grace, his, his undeserved favor, we've been called to take part in the victorious life of Jesus. And yet, how many of us sit in discouragement? How many of us pout? How many of us sit enslaved to our own goals rather than enjoying living for the ultimate goal of the team? How many of us are still living for the glory and the fame of our own name instead of the glory and the fame of Christ? 
And church, if that's you, you are, you are missing out on the joy and the freedom of living for something bigger than yourself. L- look with me at Romans 1, and we're going to look at verse 5. We'll go back through uh, all the verses, but start with verse 5, because verse 5, it says, "...through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for..." Stop at that word for. If you like to write in your, your Bibles, underline or circle that word for. You see, when you come across the word for or because in God's word, that should cue you in that you are about to see the reason for something. Right? This is, this is oftentimes the why of what is being said, right? And so when you see for or because, and it's being used as a conjunction, okay, know that the why is about to be answered. The purpose is about to be stated. And so we're going to walk through these verses one by one, but I want you right from the start to see the why, to see the why. And Paul writes that it's all for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you. It's all for the purpose of the glory and the fame of Jesus Christ. All right, so we're, we're starting into Romans this morning, a new, a new book of the Bible. And, and see, right from the start, we need to understand that all of Romans, in fact, all of the Bible and all of life, are ultimately about God. It's for the sake of his name. If you come into Romans thinking that it's all about you, you're going to miss some things in Romans. If you go through life thinking that it's all about you, you are going to miss some things in life. And so instead of having one big kind of intro to Romans Sunday, where I give all the historical context and setting and explain, you know, the city of Rome and start all into that, I'd rather just give a little bit of intro and then uh, uh, proceed and kind of continue to come back to the intro context as we go throughout the series. Because we're probably going to be in Romans for about a year, And I imagine both you and I, six months from now, are going to forget an intro sermon with all the historical context, all right? So I'm going to give a little intro, and then we're just going to jump in, and we'll keep coming back to to historical context and and all of that. In fact, I'm even going to save why we're titling this series Righteousness Revealed and how we're going to outline it, and I'm going to save that actually for next week. We're going to quickly get into the Word. But here's a couple things you do need to know about Romans before we jump in. First of all, it's written as a letter, all right? This is a letter. It's written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, possibly a group of house churches in Rome. We don't know exactly how the church in Rome was planted. Uh, Many think that possibly on the day of Pentecost, there were people from Rome there who, who heard the proclamation of the gospel, saw the Holy Spirit poured out, and they took that good news back to Rome, started gathering together, and the church and churches were formed. So we don't know exactly how this church was formed, but we do know that Paul didn't plant it. Paul didn't plant this church, which is why his introduction is going to be so long in Romans versus other letters that you see in the New Testament. Something else that we know about the church in Rome, we know that they was made up of both uh, Jewish and Gentile Christians. And this is going to be one of of Paul's main themes later on in the letter is explaining how this should work if both Jew and Gentile have now become one in Christ. How How does this work? How does this play out? And we'll see that through that, Paul wants there to be unity in the gospel. Paul wants them to be united in living for the glory and the fame of Jesus. He doesn't want to see two separate people, three separate people. He's, he's bringing them together. He's showing us how we are now one in Christ. He wants unity in the church. And this is one of our main desires here as well. We want unity in this church. We want to be united in the gospel. We know that Paul writes this letter uh, probably from uh, Corinth. And so let's go ahead and put the, the map up here. Um, 
Now, if you haven't, haven't noticed already, we have new screens in here this morning. Can anyone tell that these are, it's a little bit clearer. Usually, I mean, usually it wouldn't even matter what I picked. You wouldn't be able to tell what was up there. I would just like put a plate of lasagna and say it's the Mediterranean and whatever. You wouldn't be able to know. So I didn't even, I, I, I picked a map, but I didn't think you were going to be able to see it. So um, you see, he's, he's riding from Corinth, okay? Um, and he's riding to Rome, all right? We see Rome there. Um, but as he's writing from Corinth, he's got in his mind uh, that he's, he's planning to travel to Jerusalem. We see Jerusalem right on the, on the, the far, I guess, your right side of the screen. Uh, and he's going to travel to Jerusalem to take um, some financial aid that he's been raising amongst the other churches to the, the poor there in Jerusalem, those that needed it there in Jerusalem. But his ultimate desire is to be able to get to Rome, and he ultimately wants to get to Rome to strengthen and sustain them, but also then for Rome to be a launching pad and a launching base for him to take the gospel to Spain, which is not on this, but it would be on your very you know, far left outside of the screen. He wants to take the gospel to the nations. He wants to get to Spain. Um, and some historians believe that he ended up getting to Spain, and even Great Britain and things like that. We don't know for sure, but he, he wants to send this letter to Rome. He wants to go to Rome. He wants to see the church strengthened in Rome so that then he can take the gospel uh, to Spain. All right? But what do you guys think? The screen's okay? Okay. So know when you see, if you are sitting in a gray chair this morning, all right, the screens mean that Pastor Kevin and Ray Jones love you guys, all right? They do. They love you. We've had, right, had to have more people sitting farther away from the screens. Some of us wanted to make the screens smaller so you'd have to sit closer. But Pastor Kevin said, no, I love these people. We're going we're gonna to get them good screens so they can see, all right? So make sure you thank uh, him and, and Ray as well, all right? So that's, he's writing from Corinth. He's got on his mind. He's going to Jerusalem, but he ultimately wants to get to Rome so that he can get to Spain, all right? Okay, uh, he's trying to take the gospel to the nations, right? He's seen it spread all around the eastern part of the Mediterranean, but now he wants to take it west. He wants to see the gospel proclaimed in Corinth, where he's at. He wants to see the gospel proclaimed in Jerusalem and in Rome and in Spain so that all people might be saved from living for the glory of their own name and might experience the joy and freedom that comes from living for the glory of Christ. You see, it is the gospel that frees us from living for the glory of our own name. It is the gospel that frees us from living for the glory of our own name. I mean, look who, who, look who Paul now understands himself to be in light of the gospel. We're, we're going to look at verse 1. Romans 1, verse 1. Look at how he introduces himself to people that he's never met before. Now, I don't know about you, but when I introduce myself to people I've never met before, you know, I want to make sure they know that I've read a lot of books and, you know, I've, you know, I've got things figured out and together, right, trying to present yourself as best you can to someone who doesn't know until they can kind of figure out that, you know, you really don't know what you're doing either. And, uh, but, but that's not how Paul introduces himself, right? I mean, he could have introduced himself saying, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees. I trained under this guy. I'm knowledgeable in the scripture beyond comparison. That's not what he says. The gospel is, has freed him from that. The gospel has freedom for living for the glory of his own name. Look at how he introduces himself to people he's never met before. Romans 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. A servant of Christ Jesus. This word servant could really be translated slave. A slave of Christ Jesus. Now, many of our English translations don't translate it slave because slave to us is just really a demeaning, derogatory word. And, and, and that, that's certainly not what Paul is getting at here because he's using a similar language as to what was used in the Old Testament to describe Abraham and Moses and David, all right? And these were all very honorable servants or slaves of God. And so he's not, he's not taking a shot at his, at his value or his worth here. But he's calling himself a slave, and by seeing himself as a slave of Christ, he's saying that he is a man under authority. To consider yourself a slave or a servant is to consider yourself as someone who is under authority. He's saying that he's also bound to Christ. And so this is getting at the idea of his 
total devotion to Christ. Not just one day a week and not just in one category of life. He doesn't just serve God when it's convenient, right? Slaves don't have that option, right? He is a slave. He is under his authority. It's complete devotion to Christ. He's totally devoted to Christ. But he doesn't seem sad or upset about that. He knows that it is total devotion to Christ that brings joy and freedom. You see, we live with a God-given desire for freedom. I would argue that God-given desire for freedom was ultimately meant to lead us to Christ. And yet we look for freedom in all the wrong places and think that true freedom comes when we are under no one's authority, when we are finally bound to no one else except ourselves, and then and only then will we be free. And sadly, this is just not true. And so when we pursue freedom, let's say through, through pursuing sexual pleasure outside of the God-given design for it between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage, what we thought would lead to more freedom has actually enslaved us. And now we find ourselves to be a people and living amongst the people who are enslaved to sexual pleasure. It, in fact, is one of the things we identify as. We pursue freedom through, through all other avenues except through Christ. We pursue freedom through pursuing financial gain and possessions because we think in acquiring more of them, we'll, that will make us more free and less dependent upon God and others. And so those things that we think we possess sadly end up possessing us and we become people who are then enslaved to money and possessions. We also pursue freedom through acquiring more power, control, or knowledge. Because we think that by having more power, control, or knowledge, that then we will be able to control and protect our freedom. But then what happens is we become enslaved to grasping for more power, control, and knowledge, and we live in anxiety for fear that we might lose it or anger that we've lost it. And church, listen, anyone you serve... Anyone you are a slave to other than Christ will end up completely letting you down and it'll end up enslaving you. You'll become enslaved to sin in the process if you serve and you bind yourself to anyone other than Christ. You see, only in being a servant of Christ can true freedom be found. Wisely did Augustine once say, he said, to serve God is true liberty. Church, you are a slave to something or someone. You will go from here and serve someone. Will it be Christ? Will it be yourself? There, there's, a, there's a story told about a slave whose master was about to kill him with a spear. And a traveler was walking by and seeing this atrocity was about to take place. This traveler, with great courage and compassion, jumps in front of the spear and takes a spear to the arm that pierces him. And his blood kind of drips out, and, but, he, but he saves the slave's life. And this man who took the spear on behalf of the slave, he, he demands of the former owner that now the slave belongs to him. And he has every intention to now set that slave free. But the slave, seeing the compassion and the grace of this man, throws himself at his new master's feet and commits to serve him faithfully for all his days. For how could he ever find someone so compassionate and gracious than him? You see, in light of the gospel, this is how Paul is, is, is viewing himself. And this is how we should view ourselves as well. I mean, I, I realize we don't like to think of ourselves as servants or slaves, but we must understand that we inevitably are serving someone. And so are we going to be enslaved to serving ourselves, Or are we going to be enslaved to living for the honor and glory of the name of Christ? It's for His name's sake. 
You see, a free man and a free woman has found true joy and freedom in being bound to Christ. Being bound to Christ. We have to remind ourselves that we have a new master. We have a new Lord. Romans 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Right? What, what, what has Paul, a servant of Christ, been set apart for, been, been you know, uh, designated for, set apart for? He's been set apart for the gospel of God. Let's talk about that a little bit. The gospel of God. The word gospel literally means good news. Right? This is the good news of God. Back in ancient times when a king or an emperor would win a battle and they would secure peace or victory in a land, they would send herald or messengers to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the good news of victory throughout the kingdom. And that is the the picture, a great picture of what Paul and really all preachers of the gospel are doing, right? Ultimately, it's a proclamation of news. Right? We, don't, we don't come in on a Sunday morning. I don't come to give you advice. I don't come to necessarily be a motivational speaker to you. Right? I come to proclaim the victory of the king. We are heralds of the gospel, the good news. And some will receive that news and live in light of it, while others will reject that news and live as if it's not true. But it is true, church. Our king has secured victory. It is the gospel of God, the good news of God. That phrase, gospel of God, is really getting at the idea that this gospel, it is, it is from God, it is about God, and it is for God. All right, The gospel of God, it is from God, about God, and for God. It is first for God. Uh, excuse me, it is it's first from God. We'll get to the for God, all right? It is first from God. Meaning that this is not news that, that the Apostle Paul has, has made up. This is not news that preachers and teachers or the early church kind of came up with. No, this is news that had been proclaimed throughout thousands of years. All throughout the Old Testament, we see the gospel being proclaimed and finding its fulfillment in Christ. Speaking of the gospel, in Romans 1, verse 2, it says, again, this is from God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Right? Paul's telling them, hey, this isn't, this isn't my gospel. This is the gospel from God. It's been promised all throughout the prophet, prophets, all throughout the Holy Scriptures, really all the way back to Genesis 3. This isn't a new message that Paul has come up with. The gospel was preached to Abraham. We see, we see uh, Paul uh, teach this to the Galatians in Galatians 3, verse 8. He says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So Paul's trying to tell the Romans, Hey, this isn't, this isn't some new teaching, right? And this ultimately isn't from me. This is from God. This is from what he's been talking about all along in Genesis 3 when he said someone's going to come crush the head of the serpent, when he told Abraham that through him all the peoples of the world were going to be blessed. Like This gospel has been being preached all throughout the years and years and years, and now we find its fulfillment in Christ, and now this righteousness is revealed to us through the personal work of Jesus Christ. But it's not something new. It's good news, but it's not new news. The gospel is from God not from men. It is from God. The gospel of God is also primarily about God, which really kicks against our human nature a lot. Uh, We like things to be about us, all right? But the gospel is actually mainly about God. And And it is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's where Paul goes in Romans 1, now verse 3, right? This is from God, And it's primarily centered about him and about the personal work of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he says, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the good news of God is all about Jesus Christ. 
right? The gospel is not truly proclaimed if Christ is not proclaimed. The gospel is not fully, I guess, maybe proclaimed if Christ is not proclaimed. Who Paul says here is the descendant of David. And that phrase, the descendant of David, it's a very clear reference to him being the Messiah, him being that promised king that was to come and rule and sit on David's throne forever. Right? He, was, he was fully God who took on human flesh, who suffered and died in our place as a sacrifice for our sins and then was raised from the dead and ascended back to heaven and is now seated on his throne. You see, what Paul here is getting at in verses 3 or 4 is really not even so much the two natures of Christ, him being fully God and fully man, which that is a, a true doctrine. It's taught elsewhere in Scripture. But that's, that's not primarily what Paul is getting at here. What he's getting at and trying to teach us are the two stages of Jesus' ministry. You see, there was a pre-resurrection stage and a post-resurrection stage. And the gospel, if centered on Christ, should really include both of those stages of his ministries. All right, theologians call stage one his humiliation. They call stage two his exaltation. And both are important for the gospel message. You see, the first stage of his ministry included him, right, humbling himself and coming down to earth and being born in a manger as a baby and, and, and living life and experiencing, a, how to, living in a fallen world and experiencing temptation and then eventually suffering and his death on a cross. That's all stage one, right? His humiliation. And listen, that first stage of his ministry is so important. It really is. It's so important. But too many times we stop there when we proclaim the gospel. I mean, we love, we love Christmas, right? At least most of us do. Most of us love Christmas. We love thinking about him humbling himself, coming down as a baby. We love talking about Good Friday, him dying on the cross for our sins, which, again, is all glorious and true. But even unbelievers can be okay with part of stage one, right? Like they, they, they love seeing maybe Jesus is setting a good example, being a moral teacher, giving us some wise teachings and examples to follow. But church, stage one is not the full gospel of God that Paul is preaching here in Romans. That has been promised beforehand through the prophets and holy scriptures. No, he goes on. Look, verse four. And he was declared or better translated, appointed, the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection. You see, His exaltation is just as important to the gospel as His humbling Himself, right? And so stage two, His exaltation, it includes His, his resurrection, His eventual ascension into heaven, and then His enthronement in heaven. He is seated on the throne, and as this long-awaited Savior King, He has now ushered in a new covenant age for His people. Right? The kingdom of God is already here, not yet fully realized, but already here. And it is an age that is marked by the reign of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We live in the age of now being able to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ enthroned as king, Paul says, in power. In power, church. Yesterday morning, the power went out at our house. I don't know if you experienced this, but maybe five, six hours, no power. And it's dark in the house. And it's starting to get a little cold in the house. And when the power goes out and you're used to power, I mean, you just, you're, you're, so, you're so unproductive, right? The, the, I was going to get up and, and, and work on kind of outlining the sermon, getting all ready. Of course, my laptop is, you know, the battery's at zero, which is like, oh, come on. Getting out a piece of paper, starting to write, you know, write stuff out. Like, this is not going quickly. And it's just dark and it's cold and everything's harder to do. You just, you know, having to take flashlights into the bathroom and like just everything's harder. 
Everything feels just like more, just more work. We're just kind of grinding out, just trying to get through this season of, of no power. And honestly, as I think about that yesterday, and as I even yesterday was, you know, the plan was to wake up and, and pray and really reflect on like God's <laughs> power. I was just overwhelmed that this is, this is sort of what I think it feels like that has happened in the church in America. Like the, the, the power has gone out. It just feels a little darker, a little colder, a little like we know Christ is still king, but it's just, just harder to do everything. Things aren't just happening. And I think we've forgotten where the power comes from. But there's hope. Because we still live in the age of spiritual power. We still live in the age where Christ is on the throne and the Spirit is poured out. And you see points in history where Christians realize they've forgotten that the generator is in the prayer closet. And, and they find it, and they, they, they light it up, and they, they, they start finding a new embraced vision and taste and just love for, for prayer. And the, the prayer gatherings just start to be more real and alive, and you can feel the heat, and you can see the light that's coming from the Spirit working. And church, I'm telling you, that's happening here. The generator's still just getting going. It's sputtering a little bit, all right? We're not at full power yet. But I'm telling you, all last year, there's just this pressing on more and more of us, like, we got to pray. We got to pray. We got to gather more. We got to pray more. And so whether it's on our own in our prayer closet, whether it's in our city groups praying, whether it's here on a Thursday morning praying together, listen, church, we're praying for God's power for the heat and the light. And I want to invite you to join in on that with us because Christ is still on the throne and His Spirit is still at work. But have many of us forgotten where the true power comes from? It does not come from slick systems and strategies that we have into place. I think we see those are all failing. Those are going down. But where does the true power come from? We must, as we preach the gospel, remember the exaltation of Christ. It's, it's good to remember and celebrate that he did humble himself and was a baby in a manger. I, I'm all for that in the month of December. But listen, he's not still a baby in a manger. <laughs> he's not still getting speed on, spit on and beaten up by Roman guards. That, that's not happening right now. No, he rose victoriously from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he is now ruling and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords in power, church. In power. The gospel proclamation is that Jesus won. He won. And by God's grace, we are called to belong to him. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to him and he will reign until all his enemies have been made his footstool. And oh, how wonderful that gospel message is. Oh, how glorious that our suffering Savior has now become our exalted Lord. Yes, preach our suffering Savior, but preach our risen and exalted Lord. The gospel is about God. It is centered on the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus Christ. But not only is the gospel from God, not only is the gospel about God, the gospel is for God. Look at Romans 1, verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. 
You see, this is the glorious result of the gospel of grace going forth. It is going forth to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. The, the obedience of faith. Let's talk about that phrase for a second. The obedience of, phrase, uh, obedience of faith. Excuse me. In that phrase, Paul is trying to communicate that there is an obedience that should flow from true faith. Right? That there is a fruit of obedience that will be produced from a true root of faith. Martin Luther, who once, uh, once said, he says, We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We will preach, you know, saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone, grace alone, in, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We will preach that all day and every day. But as we preach that, we recognize that the faith that saves is never alone. There is the fruit of obedience that will come from the true root of faith. You see, our salvation is all by God's grace alone. It's all his undeserved and unearned favor. There's nothing we could do to earn it. It's all through faith alone in Christ alone. There's no amount of good works that will get us to Christ. It's only through trusting, relying, and depending upon him alone. But a true faith in Jesus Christ will lead and overflow into a life of obedience and service to him. Because when you realize that Jesus is Lord, then you inevitably must stop living like you are. But it's not just any obedience the gospel produces. You see, there is an external, there's a way to externally obey the commands of God and still be serving yourself. There's still a way to be religious and moral, and yet ultimately you are still serving and are a slave to yourself. You're still living for the glory and fame of your name. And that's not what the gospel should produce in us. You see, even many Christians will respond to calls to obedience with the question, what's in it for me? And I've asked that question a lot. No judgment if you've asked that question. It's a question that many of us ask at times when we make decisions in life or even when we you know, consider certain things. We say, what's in it for me? But church, listen, that question, what's in it for me? Is really a question someone asks who is still recovering from being a slave to self. <laughs> and I'm still recovering, all right? A slave of Christ does not ask what, what's in it for me, but instead, what's in it for him? How could Christ be glorified through this? I mean, wouldn't that just change of question, wouldn't that change our, our approach to almost everything in our lives as we seek to obey and follow Christ? Like, even as we think about our jobs and our work, our vocation, right? Wouldn't a change in question, what's in it for me, versus how could Christ be glorified through this, wouldn't that change how we approach our job? I'm not saying everyone in here needs to change their job. Maybe some of you do. I just think we probably need to change our approach to our job. Are we going as servants or slaves of Christ to this job? Or are we still going as servants and slaves to ourselves? Or to our companies? Or to money? Wouldn't changing the question, what is, it, what, what is it in this for me, to how could Christ be glorified through this, wouldn't that change our marriages? and our families, and our church, and how we engage and serve with one another. Wouldn't this change the opportunities we have to serve in this community and to engage our city, not what's in it for us, but how could Christ be glorified through this? Wouldn't this change how we see the gospel going to the nations and caring for the poor? You see, here's what's really interesting about Paul when he's writing to the Romans that I, I touched on earlier in this sermon. I think it's just so applicable to the season that we are in here as Franklin <laughs> City Church, all right? He's writing a letter to believers 
to strengthen and solidify these local churches in Rome, right? Making sure they get the gospel right, making sure they get doctrine right and all this, right? At the same time, while raising money to take to the poor in Jerusalem and dreaming about taking the gospel to Spain. And I'm looking at this and I like, I think we have brothers and sisters in here that would resonate with each of those ministries of Paul. I, I resonate with him writing the letter to Romans, right? I mean, I wake up every morning with this pounding on my heart to get God's word to God's people, to put the gospel before people and help them enjoy it more and more each day, right? That's, that's what drives me. Like, I, I, I love to see what's happening here. I want to, the, the local church to be strengthened and established here. But some of you, you probably hear about Paul raising funds for the poor in Jerusalem, and you're thinking, yeah, man, like, is it too late to get in on that, right? Is there a meal train or something I can sign up for? What, what are the needs? What are the needs? What do they need in Jerusalem? Like, let's, let's get these people what they need. And some of you right here, you're, it's just, it's just a, a God-given, just natural giftedness and passion to see our, our benevolence fund, right, continue to grow, be able to serve more people and to take care of those that are in need and meet the needs in our city and all around. Some of you resonate with Paul's desire, though, to get to Spain. Like, hey, this is all great and everything, but we got to get the gospel to the nations. Right? Zeke and Joni in El Salvador right now. We got to get the gospel to El Salvador. We got to get it beyond. Right? We got to go. And listen, I'm just looking back and, and taking a step back and saying, praise God for all of that that's happening here. I think Paul would commend all of those things. And I believe that we will do more of all of those things more and more here. But as we do, we have to keep reminding and, st and stopping to ask, uh, remind ourselves to not ask the question, what's in it for us? But how can Christ be glorified through this? And we have to see how all three ministries are vitally important and dependent upon one another. We have to see the value of a healthy local church and the right proclamation of the gospel. I mean, listen, there's been denominations and people that have been very good at missions and they've been getting the wrong gospel out to the nations, right? What harm that has caused. We got to get the gospel right. We got to have healthy local churches, but then we, we got to go because if we don't go, then it starts just becoming about us we got to start taking care more and more of the poor because if we don't, it just starts becoming about us. But if you don't have a local healthy church that's established in right doctrine and teaching and right church leadership, you might be able to raise a one-time fund for the poor, but I'm talking about raising funds like year after year, generation after generation, caring for the poor, getting the gospel to the nations. So we have to see the value of the local church in addition to the value of taking the gospel to the nations and getting and taking care and meeting the needs of the poor, the orphan, the widow, and those that God has put around us. You see, there is joy and there is freedom that we can have as ones who serve Christ and not ourselves. It doesn't have to be about us or even our local church name, or about any individual in here. And that joy and that freedom we have as we serve Christ and not ourselves, that enables us to then be able to bear with one another through some of these things, through some of our different giftings and passions, right? It, it allows us to suffer through hard things, when we experience the joy and freedom that comes through serving Christ. I mean, this, this frees us to suffer difficult and painful things for the glory of his name. After the apostles had been arrested and beaten, it says in Acts chapter 5, they'd been arrested and beaten. Acts 5, verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. You see, there's a freedom and a joy that comes from serving Christ. 
that empowers us to persevere through even suffering for the name. The full gospel encourages us in moments of suffering to remember that Christ has won and we belong to him. Christ has won and we belong to him. Back in, uh, in college at Cedarville, I was, we were playing in a big basketball game against one of our rivals. Uh, and it was a big game coming down to the wire. Time was ticking down. It was a tie game. I had the ball. I drove it in. The ball got poked away. And I go diving on it because there's no way I'm going to let them get the ball to get a chance to win before the end of the game. And as I dive, I collide heads with one of their players. And both of us suffer fairly significant head lacerations, which I don't remember everything that happened, but there was enough, there was enough blood on the court that even Britt, who's a nursing major, Cindy's like covering her eyes, right? So she can't see. And, uh, and I end up getting taken in an ambulance to the ER. The game goes into overtime. I don't know what's, what's happening, but I'm getting taken to the ER, getting imaging, getting a bunch of sutures and stitches, all that stuff. And after, uh, after all the kind of, uh, you know, cleaning up of the game, the game went on, and, and finally the result came in. And as my head is getting sewn back together, I think it was Britt who, who comes in with the good news. She says, we won. And I'm telling you, that, that really lifted my spirit. I know not everyone in here likes basketball. You can't relate with me on that. But, but that really lifted my spirit because in the moment, like things didn't look too good for me, right? I'm at the hospital. My head is getting sewn back together. My teammates are not around. Like I'm in pain a little bit. But I'm telling you, there was joy and freedom in playing for something bigger than myself. And the team that I belong to won. And so as we think about Acts 5, how could the apostles rejoice when they suffered for the name? I think that gives us a little bit of a picture, church. And so this is how we then go encourage one another with the gospel, even through trials. This is what we go and tell one another when we are in pain, when we're alone, when we have wounds, when we suffer for the name of Christ, when we're imprisoned, when we lose our jobs, when we lay in hospital beds, maybe on the verge of death, we come to one another and we remind each other, Christ has won and we belong to him. Christ has won. And we belong to him. Do you belong to him this morning? Can you say that you are a slave or servant to Christ this morning? Or are you still a slave to self? Christ wants to free you this morning. He alone, as the risen and exalted Lord, he alone has the power to do it. And so may we turn from living for the glory of our own name and instead experience the joy and the freedom that comes from living for the glory of Christ. Church, Christ has won, and we belong to him. May we enjoy that this morning. And may we live for the sake of his name. May that be why we do all that we do. It's for the sake of his name. Let's pray.